Chapter 8 of The Star Chamber, An Historical Romance, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume 2, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 8, Whitehall. The tilt yard at Whitehall, where the jousting was appointed to take place, was situated on the westerly side of the large area in front of the old banqueting house, destroyed by fire soon after the date of this history, and replaced by the stately structure planned by Anigo Jones, still existing, and formed part of a large range of buildings appertaining to the palace, and running parallel with it in a northerly direction from Westminster, devoted to purposes of exercise and recreation, and including the tennis court, the bowling alley, the menage, and the cockpit. A succession of brick walls of various heights, and surmounted by roofs of various forms and sizes, marked the position of these buildings, in reference to St. James's Park, which they skirted on the side next to King Street. They were mainly, if not entirely, erected in 1532 by Henry VIII, when, after his acquisition from Wolsey, by forfeiture, of Whitehall, he obtained by exchange from the abbot and convent of Westminster all their unenclosed land contiguous to his newly acquired palace, and immediately fenced it round, and converted it into a park. To a monarch so fond of robust sports and manly exercises of all kinds as our bluff Harry, a tilt-yard was indispensable, and he erected one on a grand scale, and made it a place of constant resort. Causing a space of one hundred and fifty yards in length, and fifty in width, to be enclosed and encircled by lofty walls, he fixed against the inner side large scaffolds, containing two tiers of seats, partitioned from each other like boxes in a theatre, for the accommodation of spectators. At the southern extremity of the enclosure he reared a magnificent gallery, which he set apart for his consort and the ladies in attendance upon her. This was decorated with velvet, and hung with curtains of cloth of gold. On grand occasions, when the court was present, the whole of the seats on the scaffolds, previously described, were filled with bright-eyed beauties, whose looks and plaudits stimulated to deeds of high emprise the knights, who styled themselves their servants, and besought favors from them in the shape of a scarf, a veil, a sleeve, a bracelet, a ringlet, or a knot of ribbons. At such times Henry himself would enter the lists, and in his earlier days, and before he became too unwieldy for active exertion, no ruder antagonist with the lance or sword could be found than he. Men indeed existed in his days very different in hardihood of frame and personal strength from the silken sybarites, enervated by constant riot and dissipation, who aped the deeds of arms of their grandfathers in the time of James I. But the tilt-yard was by no means neglected by Elizabeth. This lion-hearted queen encouraged a taste for chivalrous displays, and took almost as much delight in such exhibitions as her stalwart sire. During her long reign, no festivity was thought complete unless jousting was performed. The name of the gallant Sir Philip Sidney need only be mentioned to show that she possessed at least one perfect mirror of chivalry amongst her courtiers but her chief favorites, Essex and Leicester, were both distinguished for knightly prowess. Many a lance was splintered by them in her honor. When the French embassy arrived in London to treat of a marriage between Elizabeth and the Duc d'Anjou, and when a grand temporary banqueting house, 330 feet long, and covered with canvas, was improvised for the occasion, a magnificent tournament was given in the tilt-yard in honor of the distinguished visitors. Old Hollinshed tells us that, the gallery or place at the end of the tilt-yard adjoining to Her Majesty's house at Whitehall, where, as her person should be placed, was called, and not without cause, 
the castle or fortress of perfect beauty, for as much as her highness should be there included. And he also gives a curious description of the framework used by the besiegers of the fortress. They had provided, he says, a frame of wood which was covered with canvas and painted outwardly in such excellent order as if it had been very natural earth or mould, and carried the name of a rolling trench, which went on wheels, which way soever the persons within did drive it. Upon the top thereof were placed two cannons of wood, so passing well coloured, as they seemed to be, indeed, two fair field-pieces of ordnance, and by them were placed two men for gunners, clothed in crimson sarsenet, with their baskets of earth for defence of their bodies by them and also there stood on top of the trench an ensign-bearer, in the same suit with the gunners, displaying his ensign, and within the said trench was cunningly conveyed diverse kinds of most excellent music against the castle of beauty. These things thus, all in readiness, the challengers approached, and came down the stable toward the tilt-yard. The challengers were the Earl of Arundel, Lord Windsor, Sir Philip Sidney, and Sir Fulk Greville and the defenders were very numerous, and amongst them was the doughty Sir Harry Lee, who, as the unknown knight, broke six staves right valiantly. All the speeches made by the challengers and defenders are reported by Hollinshead, who thus winds up his description of the first day's triumph. These speeches being ended, both they and the rest marched about the tilt-yard, and so going back to the nether end thereof, prepared themselves to run, every one in his turn, each defendant six courses against the former challengers, who performed their part so valiantly on both sides, that their prowess hath demerited perpetual memory, and worthily won honour, both to themselves and their native country, as fame hath the same reported. And of the second day he thus writes, Then went they to the tourney, where they did very nobly, as the shivering of the swords might very well testify, and after that to the barriers, where they lashed it out lustily, and fought courageously, as if the Greeks and Trojans had dealt their deadly dole. No party was spared, no estate accepted, but each knight endeavored to win the golden fleece, that expected either fame or the favor of his mistress, which sport continued all the same day. These pageantries were of frequent occurrence, and the pages of the picturesque old chronicler above cited abound with descriptions of them. Yet, in spite of the efforts of Elizabeth to maintain its splendor undiminished, the star of chivalry was rapidly declining, to disappear forever in the reign of her successor. The glitter of burnished steel, the clash of arms, the rude encounter, and all other circumstances attendant upon the arena of martial sport, that had given so much delight to his predecessors, afforded little pleasure to James. And how should they, to a prince whose constitutional timidity was so great that he shuddered at the sight of a drawn sword, and abhorred the mimic representations of warfare. Neither were the rigorous principles of honor on which chivalry was based, nor the obligations they imposed better suited to him. Too faithless by nature to adopt the laws of a court of honor, he derided the institution as obsolete. Nevertheless, as trials of skill and strength in the tilt-yard were still in fashion, he was compelled, though against his inclination, to witness them, and in some degree to promote them. The day of his accession to the throne, the 24th March, was always celebrated by tilting and running at the ring, and similar displays were invariably made in honor of any important visitor to the court. Even in this reign, something of a revival of the ancient ardor for knightly pastimes took place during the brief career of Prince Henry, who, if he had lived to fulfill the promise of his youth, would have occupied a glorious page in his country's annals, 
and have saved it, in all probability, from its subsequent convulsions and intestine strife. Inuring himself betimes to the weight of armor, this young prince became exceedingly expert in the use of all weapons, could toss the pike, couch the lance, and wield the sword, the battle-axe, or the mace better than any one of his years. The tilt-yard and the tennis-court were his constant places of resort, and he was ever engaged in robust exercises, too much so, indeed, for a somewhat feeble constitution. Prince Henry indulged the dream of winning back Calais from France, and would no doubt have attempted the achievement if he had lived. Of a more reflective cast of mind than his elder brother, and with tastes less martial, Prince Charles still sedulously cultivated all the accomplishments proper to a cavalier. A perfect horseman, and well-skilled in all the practices of the tilt-yard, he was a model of courtesy and grace, but he had not Prince Henry's feverish and consuming passion for martial sports, nor did he, like him, make their pursuit the sole business of life. Still, the pure flame of chivalry burnt within his breast, and he fully recognized its high and ennobling principles, and accepted the obligations they imposed. And in this respect, as in most others, he differed essentially from his august father. The tilt-yard and the various buildings adjoining it, already enumerated, were approached by two fine gates, likewise erected by Henry the Eighth, one of which, of extraordinary beauty, denominated the Cockpit Gate, was designed by the celebrated painter Hans Holbein. From an authority we learn that it was built of square stone with small squares of flint boulder, very neatly set, and that it had also battlements and four lofty towers, the whole being enriched with bustos, roses, and portcullises. The other gate, scarcely less beautiful, and styled the Westminster Gate, was adorned with statues and medallions, and the badges of the royal house of Tudor carved in stone. Viewed from the summit of one of the tall turrets of the Holbein Gate, the appearance of the Palace of Whitehall, at the period of our history, was exceedingly picturesque and striking, perhaps more so than at any previous or subsequent epoch, since the various structures of which it was composed were just old enough to have acquired a time-honored character, while they were still in tolerable preservation. Let us glance at it, then, from this point, and first turn towards the great banqueting house, which presents to us a noble and lengthened façade, and contains within a magnificent and lofty hall, occupying nearly its full extent, besides several other apartments of regal size and splendor. In this building, in former days, were the retinue as princely as that of the king himself, Wolsey so often and so sumptuously entertained his royal master, that he at last provoked his anger by his ostentation, and was bereft of his superb abode. Satisfied with our examination of the banqueting-house, we will suffer our gaze to fall upon the broad court beyond it, and upon the numerous irregular but picturesque and beautiful structures by which that court, quadrangle it cannot be called, for no uniformity is observed in the disposition of the buildings, is surrounded. Here the eye is attracted by a confused mass of roofs, some flat, turreted, and embattled, some pointed with fantastical gables and stacks of tall chimneys, others with cupolas and tall clock-towers, others with crocketed pinnacles, and almost all with large gilt veins. A large palace is a city in miniature, and so is it with Whitehall. It has two other courts besides the one we are surveying, equally crowded round with buildings, equally wanting in uniformity, but equally picturesque. On the east it extends to Scotland Yard, and on the west to the open space in front of Westminster Hall. The state apartments face the river, and their large windows look upon the stream. 
Quitting the exalted position we have hitherto assumed, and viewing Whitehall from some bark on the Thames, we shall find that it has a stern and sombre look, being castellated, in part, with towers like those over Trader's Gate, commanding the stairs that approach it from the river. The privy gardens are beautifully laid out, in broad terrace walks, with dainty parterres, each having a statue in the midst, while there is a fountain in the centre of the enclosure. In addition to the gardens, and separated from them by an avenue of tall trees, is a spacious bowling green. Again, changing our position, we discover on the south of the gardens, and connected with the state apartments, a long ambulatory, called the Stone Gallery. Then returning to our first post of observation, and taking a bird's-eye view of the whole, after examining it in detail, as before mentioned, we come to the conclusion that, though irregular in the extreme, and with no pretension whatever to plan in its arrangement, the Palace of Whitehall is eminently picturesque, and imposing from its vast extent. If taken in connection with Westminster Hall, the Parliament House, and the ancient Abbey, with the two towering gateways, on one of which we ourselves are perched, with the various structures appertaining to it, and skirting St. James's Park, and with the noble Gothic cross at Charing, we are fain to acknowledge that it constitutes a very striking picture. End of chapter 8